I'm uh, thankful uh, today also for uh, the Lord's help uh, as we try to study and as we try to pray. He is gracious to help us. and uh, I am undeserving of how the Lord uh, is able to, to work in my life, and I praise Him for that. I appreciated our Sunday school lesson this morning as we've studied through the book of Philemon. It's just a short book, and we made it about halfway through. That's a record for Brother Jeff to make it halfway through a book in Sunday school. But uh, Philemon was one who would, by earthly standards, be considered wealthy. And the subject of the book of Philemon is a slave who would have been the exact opposite of everything that Philemon is. But Paul was writing to him, and the essence of what he was writing to him is that Philemon had had that experience that we talked about a little earlier. And while Philemon may have been on a different plane compared to, or excuse me, that Onesimus, while he may have been on a different plane compared to Philemon, spiritually, they were brothers. Spiritually, they were equal. We have unity today by the Spirit of God. In a world of constant division, what a joy to have unity by the Spirit of God. I'm just mesmerized sometimes by how the Lord works in the lives of people. Not just today, but 2,000 years ago, as was the case in the lives of Philemon and the lives of Onesimus and Paul, 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, dating back to creation. He is a good God. I'm thankful to serve Him today. I invite you to turn with me to the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis. The book of beginnings, the 18th chapter. It's the very first book in the Bible. A lot easier to find than the book of Philemon. The book of Genesis. We're here kind of in the early to middle part of God's dealings with His servant Abraham. Specifically what we see is that Abraham has encountered some men. They were angels that had came to him. And we want to read about some of those dealings as they continued here in Genesis chapter 18 beginning with verse 16. It says, And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went away with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is coming to me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, he says, suppose there be fifty righteous within the city. Will thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? 
that be far from thee to do after this matter, after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for the sakes of those fifty righteous. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Suppose there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Will thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, I, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Suppose there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Suppose there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Suppose ten shall be find there, found there. And he said, I will not destroy it. For ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. And we'll stop there at the conclusion of the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis. Here we find the Lord's consideration of his dealings with Abraham concerning the city of Sodom. We see also Abraham's intercession or attempted intercession for the city of Sodom. And there's a lot to be said about the issues of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a lot to be said about the judgment that would befall the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can read on into the 19th chapter uh, to see more about that today. Uh, but what we are seeing ultimately here in this passage is the Lord concerning, considering Abraham, considering his purpose for Abraham, considering Abraham's character, and considering the Lord's purpose for all of us. First, we see that God takes into account all that had been promised through Abraham. That Abraham would become a great nation, a mighty nation. We see that promise that God had with Abraham. We see the Abrahamic covenant concerning that which would come of Abraham, that he'd be the father of many nations. And we know this rather well. We sing that song in Sunday school sometimes, that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just, you know that song? So let's just praise the Lord. So we know this, that, that God had special consideration for Abraham. And so as he was considering what would happen, what would become of Sodom and Gomorrah, y'all are laughing at me singing, and they were considering what it was that would come upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knew that Abraham was just and upright in his dealings. And he said, should I, the Lord was supposing to himself, should I make known unto Abraham what it is that I will do? And he had a special consideration of Abraham. We're going to come back to that in a minute here at verse 19. And he says, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great in verse 20, because their sin is very grievous, the Lord says, I will go down and I will investigate for myself what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah and whether or not my judgment would come upon the city. So Abraham has come with these three angels to tell them goodbye and he's bidding them farewell and they'll go on and set their faces towards Sodom. And it says, meanwhile, that Abraham is standing before the Lord. And I want you to get a picture of this in your mind of what's happening. Because I think the Bible is, is, is read best when we put ourselves in these situations. We see the vision of what's taking place between Abraham and God. It says that Abraham draws near unto the Lord. 
Abraham learns of what's going to happen to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he can't stand the thought that there might be those that are righteous that would be destroyed with the wicked. So he entreats the judge, he entreats God, and he makes his case in a plea before God concerning the righteous that might be found in the city of Sodom. And he goes through, he says, Oh God, it would not be in your character, it would be far from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he says, So suppose that I was to go to Sodom, and we were to find there, as the Lord would come down and take a look for Himself, suppose, God, that you would find in Sodom just 50 righteous. Would you spare the city? And God says, I will spare the city if I find 50 righteous there. And Abraham, I suppose, is considering this, and he says, well, that's good. And maybe he got a little worried, and he said, well, God, what what if we've come a little bit short of the 50 when you go and you investigate if there be righteousness found, if there be righteous people found in the city of Sodom? Suppose we come up a little bit short, and there be 45 found there. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked just because we lack five? And God in His mercy says, I will not destroy the city for 45's sake. And he keeps going, and we see it go down to 30, and we see it go down to 20. And finally we see that, that Abraham makes a final petition before the Lord. He says, suppose there be just 10 that are found in the city that are righteous. Will you spare your judgment upon the city for the sake of those 10? The Lord says, I will do this. We can read on and we can see that judgment ultimately comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that that city was was filled with wickedness. And it appears to us, based upon the account that we're able to read, that, that there was no righteousness found there. And so God destroyed those cities in His judgment. You might be wondering then, what are we to do with this? And what are we to do with this is we can take a learning from verse 19 concerning God's purpose for Abraham and God's purpose for all of us too and God's what God saw when He looked at Abraham and saw his character. Listen to verse 19. It says, For I know him. God knew Abraham. He said, I know him. And I know that he will command, I know that he will instruct his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice, to do righteousness and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of him. You see, God had made a promise with Abraham, and he made a promise with Abraham knowing who Abraham was. He knew his heart, and he knew his faithfulness. He knew the character of Abraham, and that he was upright. And he knew that Abraham was going to instruct his children, instruct his household, instruct those generations that would come behind him concerning the way of the Lord. And that's what I want to speak about to you today is the way of the Lord. And specifically, we see what that way of the Lord is. He says to do justice. That is to do righteousness and judgment. Justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness. Now, if we're to deal with the way of the Lord, what I want you to see ultimately is the intersection of these two principal tenets of our faith. Righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. 
Now, if we're going to be able to see the intersection of these two things, we must first understand them independently of one another. Now, I want to say that we could spend all day preaching on righteousness, and we could spend another day preaching on justice, but I don't think any of you would like me very much if I kept us here for the next two days preaching about righteousness and judgment. And so I just want to quickly skim the surface of both of these that we can have a bit of an understanding as we consider them as it relates to the way of the Lord. First, we see the word righteousness. And to a degree, I think all of us can understand what righteousness means. It is to, to live rightly. It's to be holy. It is perfection. We see that in the word, don't we? It has right, right there in the word. Righteousness. But at the same time, while all of us have some degree of understanding about this idea of righteousness, we cannot understand it indeed. It's impossible for us to understand righteousness in action. Why? Because none of us are righteous. Scripture makes clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture makes clear in another place that there is none righteous. No, not one. The prophet Isaiah says it clear. He says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That there is nothing good about man that we could consider righteousness and understand it as a man would understand the deeds of another. Man, by its nature, is sinful. Consider what Paul considered about his own condition. He said, those things that I would want to do, those are the things that I don't do. And those things that I would not want to do, those things that are sinful, that I despise, that I don't want to engage in, those are the things that I do. He saw the human condition that he was constantly struggling within himself on this battle of righteousness. And he ultimately concluded this. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver? Deliver me from the body of this death. He saw in himself that there was nothing of his own that was righteous. There is nothing of your own that is righteous. There is nothing of my own that is righteous. On my very best day, I fall short of the standard of perfection. Don't you? I think we would all recognize that in ourselves. That we are not righteous. Meanwhile, the God we serve is fully and completely righteous. There is in Him no error. He is fully and completely holy and right. And He is that way all the time. God does not go from moments of righteousness to moments of righteousness. He is righteous all the time. And He has been since the beginning. Yes, He has been that way since before the beginning. He's eternal by His nature. And He is eternally righteous. He is free from fault. He is free from blame. He is free from all the the transgressions and inaccuracies that we have. He is free from our inaccuracies. He is free from our weakness. He's free from complaint. (laughs) I mean, just think about how much we complain. (laughs) God's free from complaint. He is altogether perfect. And He has been all this time. You cannot even find a shadow of Him being some other way. Isn't that incredible? 
If you were to look at some good thing that you saw in me, and you said, no, you know, Derek, he, he took that, that meal to that person who was struggling and, and was, what was homeless and, and facing all these difficulties of life. He did this good thing. And if you were to then examine me, you would start to see, but you know what? I don't know if his intents were right. I don't know if, he's, if the intentions of his heart were right when he did that. Or maybe he did it the wrong way. Or, or he transgressed in some other way on his way to do it. You would look and you would say, even though I might have done some deed that you would say in and of itself is righteous, that I messed up along my way to do it. God, meanwhile, not only are the deeds that he does righteous, but his intentions are righteous. His ways are righteous. All about him is righteous and good. We serve a righteous God. And he is just. Justice is a legal word. And it is, means to do correctly in all circumstances with all people all the time. It is integrity and honesty distributing rightly to each according to what they are due. It's fairness and it's equity. It is without partiality or favoritism or respect of persons. It is to be impartial and to deal rightly in all of your dealings. I think individually we typically support this idea of justice, don't we? I mean, just look at the culture around us. I mean, this culture around us, it is seeking after always of social justice. It sees justice as some, something that is good and worthwhile pursuing. And it is. Justice in its absolute sense is something that is worthwhile to pursue. And individually, we typically support this idea so long as it is in our favor. We like things to be impartial, when the alternative is that we would get the short end of the end of the stick. And if you don't believe me on this, just consider children. It seems like right after children learn how to say mommy and daddy, they learn how to say that's not fair. Right? They see that there's some imbalance in what is taking place, and they would say, that's not fair. I'm getting the short end of the stick. You're giving, doing more to somebody else. You're showing favorites or partiality towards someone else, and I'm on the losing end. And so we're interested in justice when we're on the losing end. Yet when we're on the winning end, when an injustice tips in our favor, it is more difficult to be in favor of justice, isn't it? We like the imbalanced scale when the imbalance is in our favor. God, meanwhile, is a lover of justice all the time. Listen to what Isaiah said about it. He says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. He deals rightly in all situations and He is accurate and He is just in all that He does. Listen to me. If God deals something to you that you find favorable or if God deals something to you that you find unfavorable, God is just no matter what. You might look at it and you might wag your finger and blame at Him and say that there has been some partiality shown against me or partiality shown against somebody else. But listen to me. God sees all that is in the scales. He sees all that is in the balance. And He deals justly and rightly all the time. He is a just God. And He has reserved for Himself vengeance against the wicked. 
listen to me, final justice is the Lord's. He will make all things right. He performs justice and He performs it rightly. God is a just God. Now, as we've talked about these things, righteousness and justice, you may have noticed a problem. If God is holy and just, which He is, and if we are unrighteous, sinful, and unjust, what are we going to do? There's a problem there, isn't there? How can our unrighteousness ever have fellowship with that which is holy? How can God's justness ever have fellowship with that which is unjust? There is a problem between these two things. They are incompatible. God's righteousness and His justness and our unrighteousness and our unjustness. There is some problem. What are we going to do? The reality is that God's holiness cannot go against His justice or vice versa. God cannot somehow excuse His justice that He might instead deal lovingly. God cannot somehow excuse His loving, His benevolence to instead act justice. All these things must hold still and constant all the time. He must be proved right all the time. And He must be found justice or just all the time. And so there's a problem. His justice has to be satisfied. The balance has the balance of the scale has to be met. And meanwhile, the sinner stands in danger of that justice because there is no righteousness of themselves that they can cling to. I ask you, sinner, if you were to stand before a holy and just God, what do you have to say about yourself? to declare yourself righteous. Again, we all just shook our heads in agreement when we said that on our best day, we don't measure up to the righteousness of God. What are we going to do? This is the great conflict of Scripture. This is the great problem of the Bible. This is the great problem of humanity. This is the great problem that we see all around us in society today is that men love wickedness and God is upright and He is just and He is holy and men love wickedness and they hate that which is right. Men love darkness because their deeds are hidden there. They can go about their lives in the darkness and never worry about those things that they would do that is hidden by the darkness being brought to light. So they hate that, which is light. Listen to me. Justness always calls things out into the light. This is the great conflict of humanity. This is the great problem of Scripture, how can a just God spare His wrath from an unholy sinner like you? That's the great question, isn't it? How can a just God, a righteous God, a holy God, who of Himself there is no change, how can He spare His wrath from an unholy sinner like you? Listen to me. If based only on our actions and our conduct, God would be right. His righteousness and His justice would be satisfied to condemn you and me both to hell because of our unrighteous deeds. I want to say that again. 
God would be fully and completely right if based only on our deeds, only upon those things that we do, if based only upon our actions, God would be satisfied and right in justice if He was to condemn me and you both to hell. But, I'm always thankful that there's a but. But, thanks be to God, His righteousness and His justice, they do intersect. If these things were left in in parallel, we would be miserable. We'd be without hope. And we'd all be condemned to hell. But they intersect. They don't run in parallel for eternity. They come to a place where they meet. The Bible says this concerning death. It says that the wages of sin is death. What's that mean? It means that because we sin, our reward for our sin is death. Just like you go to work and you're paid a wage as a reward for your labor, as a reward for your work. So it is that, that because we are sinners, we are going to die. Death is what we receive as a, as a reward, as the wage for sins. The wages of sin is death. So sin brings about death. It says in another place that sin entered the world through the transgression of Adam and that through sin entering the world, death entered by sin. We see that clearly. The Bible makes it clear that death is a consequence of sin. All have sinned and so all die. For this great dilemma of Scripture then to be resolved, for a just God, a righteous God, to have have any dealings with unrighteous man, his wrath, death, has to be satisfied. Someone had to die. Now, the righteousness of God can only be met if a righteous man died. Now, that's a problem. We all disagree that we're unrighteous. Your death is not going to satisfy God's demand. It's not going to satisfy His righteousness and it's not going to satisfy His justness. Your death would not meet the requirements of God that His His righteousness and His justice would be satisfied. So not only did someone have to die, but it must be that a righteous man would die. This is where they intersect. Justness and righteousness. For what we see is that God gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, into the world. He gave Himself. And I need you to understand something about Jesus. Jesus, though He took on humanity, He always kept His character as God. He always maintained His deity. He was the God-man. What does that mean? Why is that so important? Well, it is that Jesus took on flesh and Jesus has experienced all the temptations and all the struggles and difficulties of life. Jesus knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be thirsty. He knows what it is to grieve and to mourn. He knows what it is to work. He 
knows you're about disappointment and he knows about depression. He knows about struggles and sacrifice. He knows what it is to be poor, even though he's, he owns it all. He understands what it is to go through the human condition. And while that is all indeed true, we see also that Jesus never gave up his character in sharing in the office of God, the Trinity, as the Son of God. Here on earth, he walked perfectly and righteously. And there is no sin in the Son. He never even thought a sinful thought. The Son of God is fully righteous. So then, the question is, why did a righteous man die? You say, Derek, you just told me that the wages of sin is death, and you're now you're telling me that a sinless man died. Those two things don't add up. And you'd be right to say that. You'd be right to, to, to levy that question. How is it then that there would be a righteous man that has died? And the reality is, is that God was pleased by the death of His Son. He was pleased to pour out the wrath that God has for sin against His Son. You see, if Jesus had not been crucified, if Jesus had not been murdered, if Jesus had not been put to death, He would still be alive. Because indeed, the wages of sin is death, and there was nothing about Jesus that would have made Him grow old and gray, and made it that His body would have gone through all the decay that our bodies go through, even right now, as a consequence of sin. But instead, Jesus was put to death, and He was crucified by the very ones that He had came to save. And God was pleased by the death of His Son. He was pleased, God was, to pour out the wrath of sin, the wrath that He has against sin, onto His Son. You see, Jesus, we, you hear oftentimes in, in, in churches that Jesus bore our sins, and, and that's true. I want you to know that Jesus, the reason why He was put to death, even though He's a righteous man, was because of your sins. It's your sins that hung Jesus there on the cross. It is your unrighteousness, it is your transgressions, it is your iniquities that hung Jesus on the cross. But my friends, it was not merely that Jesus hung on the cross for our sins, but it was also that God poured out His wrath for sin onto His Son. God saw fit and it was, He was pleased. He was appeased by His Son's death. Why? Because in it, He tasted the death of sin that you and I don't have to. What's that mean? When we look to what Jesus did, when we look back to what we see here in the book of Genesis, Abraham was making intercession for the people of Sodom. And he was trying to find some way that there might be judgment spared upon those people. He was looking for some righteousness in that city that would keep God from destroying it. 
And so it is today. Men everywhere are looking for some way, some righteousness in themselves that would spare God from destroying us by His wrath. And as you would look in yourself and you look further in yourself, you can take your whole life trying to look inwardly at yourself, trying to improve your life every day, trying to be a better person, trying to do those things that society would look at and say, those things are good. And you could exhaust yourself trying to live righteously. And you would find yourself at the end of your life and you would take inventory and you would look back and you would say, there is nothing in my life that is righteous. That's what God found when He took inventory of Sodom. He looked through it and though it was that He would have been pleased if He had found but one righteous person there to have spared the city. Behold, there was none righteous. No, not one. (laughs) Jesus, meanwhile, He is the righteous one that you and I can be spared. He's the righteous one that God's judgment doesn't have to pour out upon us because it's poured out upon Him. He's taken the judgment of God upon Himself and He's drank our death. He has borne our griefs. He was stricken by our iniquities. He has borne all that we have sinned and all that we have fallen short of the glory of God. It was put on Him. And we see that Christ was destroyed for our sins. Do you see that? A lot of times people like to say that, that, that what happened was that our sins were, were cast into the sea of forgetfulness. My friends, that, that's leaving out part of what happened. Our sins were heaped upon Jesus. And Jesus was thrown into the sea. You see why I say it's all about Jesus? I have no other hope but the Son of God. I have taken inventory of my life. I know my heart and I know my thoughts and I know how filled my life is with sin and it does not measure up even one ounce to the righteousness of God. So but for Jesus, I would be miserable. (laughs) That's why it's all about Him. That's why He's the only hope for the world. That's why these, these simple expressions, well, yes, I'm a Christian, or, or, or yes, I've accepted God, or accepted Jesus, I've done all these things that put us at the center. That's why they just don't measure up. How can they measure up seeing what Jesus has done on our behalf and that He has borne our griefs and has tasted the wrath of God? He has provided a cover for us. Listen to me. You say, Derek, how do you know these things? How do you have this assurance that when you stand before God that you're going to stand before Him in judgment and He's going to judge you rightly and still let you go to heaven? It's because He's going to look upon me And he's going to see the righteousness of his son. I'm going to heaven on the merits of another. I'm not getting there on my own work. I'm not getting there on my own. I'm getting there because of what Jesus did. I'm going to stand before God at the gates of the city. And he's going to say, why should I let you in? I'm going to say, because that man behind you. He has done the work and I've trusted in Him and i believed in Him and I know Him and He knows me. Oh, and blessed be Jesus Christ. He was looking behind God and nodding. I know that one. He's mine. 
Don't you see the high calling of God? I want to say something about this covering. The atonement that Jesus made to cover our sins. What satisfied God in pouring out His wrath upon Jesus? I want you to know that it was God who was satisfied. It was God's righteous, or God's wrath that was satisfied. It was God's demand for justice that was satisfied. We share in the benefit of the atoning death of Jesus. We receive the blessing because of what Jesus did. I gotta say this one more time. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His work on the cross. Now, as I close, I need to call our attention back to Scripture. Back to Genesis 18 and 19. It says, For I know Him, and I know that He will instruct His children and all of His household in the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which He had spoken of him. God said, I know Him. He said, I know that He's going to teach His house and his household and all those that would come after him of the way of the Lord to do righteous and and to be just. And he said this, he said that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. I want you to know one of the characteristics of God that I think we understand, but we maybe not don't value the way that we should, is that he doesn't change. God had made a promise to Abraham And here he says, because of that promise, I would bring upon Abraham that which I have spoken of him. (coughs) Why is that so significant? There are some times when we see a sinner struggling hard with God and we're made to ask ourselves, why can't they pray through? What's holding that sinner back from getting saved? They've prayed so many times and they've prayed for so long. What's preventing them? What's standing in their way? And we wonder, has God somehow forgotten His promise? Has God somehow forgotten the cause? Has God somehow forgotten that He's given His own Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life? Has God somehow found Himself so busy with the affairs of the world that He has forgotten His promise towards sinners? And we would wonder, is it possible today for a sinner to still have those experiences like we've talked about this morning? Is it possible for a sinner to still find salvation? God knows His promise. And He has not forgotten you. If you are here and you are a sinner and you would say, Derek, I've never had this, this experience that we've talked about today. I've never come to know, know Jesus. I've never had that experience that we've heard Sister Malia talk about for these experiences where someone says, I have a time and a place where my life was changed because of Jesus. And you might say, how can I have that experience? What is it that I'm missing? Listen to me. What we see in Jesus is that because of His death, He has brought to us a new promise. God had made a promise with Abraham that He would make of him many nations. God has made a promise through Jesus that all that would 
repent and believe the gospel can be saved. And he's not forgotten that promise. And you say, Derek, how do you know that he's not forgotten that promise that has been made? In the book of Hebrews, we read that where there is a testament, there must also be a testator. Where there is a promise, there must be one that has promised. And what we see in Jesus is that God's promise has been paid and received in full. All that is remaining today for you to be saved is to repent and trust in Jesus. That's all that's remaining. All the work necessary for you to be saved, it's been accomplished. And God, He's not forgotten it. He's not forgotten it. He said, well, Derek, I don't understand these words you're talking about. Repent and believe. Let me tell you for a minute just a little bit about Him. Repent and believe. Listen to me, that's the, the two requirements of salvation is to repent and believe. It's not to get up and shake some preacher's hand. It's not to repeat a prayer. It's not to do all these mechanisms of religion that society has created. It won't be found in any of them. It is to repent. What's repent mean? Derek, that sounds like something like you're saying to apologize. It's, it's more than just saying, God, I'm sorry that I'm a sinner. Listen, there's not a sinner on the planet that's not sorry they're a sinner. The devil himself is sorry that he's a sinner. To repent means to let go of this life and to follow Jesus. It is to, you're, you're going this direction. You're facing towards the world. It is to turn your back on the world and to turn towards Christ. It is to let go of this life and to grab a hold of life eternal. And I want you to know that will not happen unless you fully trust that this man that I've told you about, Jesus, who has satisfied God's wrath, who has satisfied the demands of God's righteousness and His justness, where this cross of Christ where we see that justice and righteousness have intersected, you will not repent unless you fully trust Him. Unless you fully believe. We used to call, and we should still call, repentance and faith, repentance, and, and trusting in Jesus. We just call them inseparable graces. You, you can't separate them. You can't have one without the other. You ain't going to repent. Excuse me, that's bad language. You aren't going to repent unless you trust in Jesus. And you're not going to fully trust in Jesus unless you repent. Listen to me. 0.1% in the world and 99.9% believing in Jesus isn't going to cut it. Jesus has said, Pick up your cross and follow me. When Jesus was dealing with His disciples and He was calling His first disciples, He said, follow me. They would ask questions. They would have doubts. They were wondering who was this man that was calling to them. And He would just say, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And so today is the same call to the sinner. It's follow me. It's believe me. It's trust me. It's take up your cross and follow me. It's let go of this life. It has nothing for you in the first place. Let go of it and follow me. It's repentance. And it's faith. Sister Malia came to that intersection of repentance and faith sitting on the side of her bathtub. Countless others have come to the intersection of repentance and faith. They've prayed through. They've had that experience that you can only have with God on altar benches like this one, at home in their beds, 
back behind water fountains, all over the place. Because listen to me, it is not some act of religion salvation is. Salvation is an act of the Lord saving that one, that man, that woman, that boy, that girl who has let go of everything else and trusted in Jesus for salvation. Aren't you glad? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad it's not a religion. I'm so glad. It, 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 listen, I, I'm not somebody who's against religion. I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with religion. If you want to call me religious, I'm good with that. If you want to say missionary Baptist as, as a, as a dom- denomination is a religion, I'm good with that. I'm not against the word religion. I know a lot of people are, but I'm not against it because what I'm holding to, what I'm believing in, it supersedes, it exceeds, it goes high above religion. Because listen to me, I'm not trusting in the doctrines and practices of faith church. I'm not trusting in the doctrines and practices of missionary Baptist faith because what I'm trusting in is Jesus. And I believe that it is Jesus that is at the foundation of the doctrines and practices of faith church. I believe it's Jesus that is at the foundation of the doctrines and practices of missionary Baptist churches. So you see, it's not my religion that I'm building my hope for salvation on. I'm not building my hope for heaven on religious practices. I'm building my hope for heaven on the blood of Jesus. It's Him. It's Him. I hope you understand, Faith Church, why I always have to come back to this. It's all about Him. I'm going to close. Brother Brett, get us some song of invitation. I want to invite you to meet the Lord. You say, Derek, how can you do that? Well, the answer is that The only way I can invite anybody to meet the Lord is to tell you to go to Him. You see, we're going to give a song of invitation. And all this song of invitation is, and maybe it's better to say this is a song of opportunity. It's a song that is to give you the chance to respond to what you've heard. Not just what you've heard with your ears, but what maybe God has pressed in your heart. Maybe there's a stirring in your heart. You're saying, I've never heard these types of things before. Or maybe I've heard them, but for the first time, they've awoken me in a new way today that I've not been awoken before. And suddenly, I have this that's, that's turning inside of me, and I'm not sure what to do with it. I want to extend this opportunity to you to come and seek the Lord. Not to come up and talk to me. Not to go on and talk to one of our deacons or one of our elders. But instead, to come and talk to the Lord. This pew, this place right here has been reserved for the express purpose of coming and talking to the Lord. Why? Because it is not myself. It is not faith church. It is not anyone here that can save anybody. But it's the Lord. And so we've reserved this place for people to come and talk to God. And listen to me. If you come to Him, He is faithful and He is righteous and He is just to hear you. You know why God hears us when we pray? It's not because of me and it's not because of you. There would be no reason for a righteous God. There would be no reason for the God who spoke the universe into existence to ever speak to me except His Son 
has paid a price that has now given me the occasion and the opportunity to pray. God is willing to hear you, sinner, because of what Jesus has done. So you can come, and you can come in faith. You can come trusting. You can come believing that God really will hear you. He has promised that He will hear you. He said, Whosoever shall call upon My name shall be saved. Baptist churches have a hard time sometimes with that, but I believe that to be true. The Bible tells me so. Whosoever shall call upon My name shall be saved. If you come in faith believing and you call upon the name of God, call upon the name of Christ, He is faithful and He is just to save you. So always stand and always sing. Listen, God's dealing with you in some way. Don't put it off. You might say, I cannot wait till this preacher is done. I cannot wait till this service is done. And I really hope I don't have to come back here again. Listen, I'm not mad at you for thinking that. I've been a boy that's thought that before. Man, I wish this preacher would hurry up. Then one day something changed. I said enough of this. I cried to the Lord and He heard me. And He will hear you. And He will hear you. Always saying, always saying.